0: listening to legal talk network hello and welcome to the ABA section of antitrust law this is Creighton Macy and I'm the host for today's podcast we're here in beautiful Utah and uh, we are all first-time podcast participants but that won't stop us from uh, giving you all a great program so joining me to my immediate left is Kim Scott Kim is a partner in the Michigan office of Miller Canfield where she focuses on things like sports law and bet the company litigation. Kim is also the co-chair of the ABA section of Antitrust Law's Trade, Sports, and Professional Associations Committee. Next to Kim, we have Melissa Maxman, the managing partner of Cohen Gressler's D.C. office. And Melissa, like Kim deals in high-stakes litigation and sports law. And also like Kim, she's a co-chair of an ABA committee. Putting the two together, Melissa is the co-chair of exemptions and immunities. So between Kim and Melissa, we've got kind of the two co-chairs that are going to be talking about today's topics. And directly next to Melissa, we've got Sacha Guslin, who's a well-known sports attorney as well as litigator, just like our two other panelists. And Sacha is a vice chair on the Trade, Sports, and Professional Association. So I think today, starting with this podcast, we couldn't have a better lineup. And before we get started, how are you all doing?
1: Terrific. Happy to be here. Great. Wonderful. Thanks. Are
0: you all excited to talk about antitrust exemptions in sports? That's the question I have for you, <laughs> because I'm excited, and I've been waiting all day for this.
2: Looking forward to it.
0: Okay. Awesome. So with that, you know, a little bit of background about what we're going to discuss, and I'm not going to get into it too much because we all want to hear from you three. We're talking about antitrust exemptions in sports. It's a popular subject, and perhaps the most popular subject or known subject among folks that don't practice or are interested in antitrust is how antitrust laws affect some of the sports we have, whether it's the NCAA whether it's professional sports, we always read about potential lockouts or collective bargaining relating to the NBA or the NFL. We were reading about the O'Bannon case all the time related to NCAA. And so with that, I kind of wanted to get started by just asking Melissa, what actually is an exemption though, with respect to antitrust?
1: Well, thanks Creighton. And um, as I said, I'm delighted to be here. Exemptions and immunities are what they sound like. They are exemptions to the antitrust laws. And they run the gamut. I actually, in preparation for this podcast, decided to have a look at all of the different exemptions and immunities that exist. Antitrust lawyers, most of us, know of, for example, the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which exempts business of insurance from antitrust rules. But you may not know that we have Things that are, my particular favorite was the Anti-Hog Cholera Serum and Hog Cholera Virus Act of 1935. Sure, sure. wow, They're well now known. People, people we're all don't. To yes, talk about exactly. Yes. there are dozens of them. Most of them are statutory. Most of them are passed by Congress. Most of them are also obsolete and anachronistic at this point. Sure. That being said, most of the exemptions and immunities that were created by Congress, and I'll come to. Judicial ones in a moment, which is really relevant to the sports law area. Absolutely. The exemptions and immunities to the antitrust laws, because you have to remember the Sherman Act is also passed by Congress in the 8th, 19th century. And they are areas that Congress, in its infinite wisdom, believed were so important that they eclipsed the philosophical goals of the antitrust laws, which was to create a level playing field and to make sure consumers were properly protected. And so the areas roughly fall into agriculture, including milk, because especially the agriculture exemptions and immunities were all passed either during the Depression or during World War II or right before World War II because people were worried about getting food on the table and you didn't have big ag the way you do now. Similarly, insurance, transportation is big. The Shipping Act, the filed rate doctrine, being able to get your motor transportation exemption. Again, these are all early exemptions that were passed because Congress was worried about putting too many restrictions from an antitrust perspective on transport. The other big one is exports, where we're going to be able to compete with our exports with the goods and services that people in other countries can get. So that's very general. But from a more philosophical perspective, and I think it really is the the underpinning of Mm -hmm. the antitrust sports exemptions, is what things are so important to human beings that we are going to say that it is per se legal to allow you to coordinate with your competitors yep, and i think it's a very interesting question nowadays about whether or not sports is one of those things obviously you need to have some sort of exemptions so that my wonderful alma mater university of michigan go blue is not scheduled to play both ohio state and notre dame on the same day that being said at what point do you need something less Aggressive, like right. a rule of reason. And the last thing I'll say about this is the baseball exemption, yep. interestingly enough, is not statutorily created. In 1922, the Supreme Court, in the seminal case of federal baseball, decided that during the Lochner era, which was an era during which uh, the Supreme Court was much more comfortable being judicially active and trying to impose upon statutes or common law what they thought was right for the country than they are now, they said, well, baseball really doesn't involve interstate commerce any more than if a lawyer is litigating in a state in which they're not barred, you're not really interstate commerce. Now, many, many a tree has died since that time. Sure. Explaining why that's stupid. Okay. That being said, later, the... Supreme Court comes back and says, well, in a subsequent case, well, we can't overrule precedent. And so the baseball exemption was kind of shoehorned in Mm -hmm. and nobody has wanted to change it. And so now we're looking at a policy that may no longer be necessary and that's being chipped away at in other sports. So that's very generally what we're talking about.
0: So, Kim, Melissa just had the unenviable task of boiling down exemptions in antitrust in a very short period. I'm going to ask you for an equally unenviable task, and that's talking to us about antitrust exemptions, particularly relating to sports.
3: It is an unenviable position because there is so much that you can say, and what I want to do is limit my comments to professional sports and then kick it to the end of the couch to Satha about the Amateur Sports Act. So, um, as Melissa was talking about, there is the baseball exemption. No other sport, professional sport, has such an exemption. It has been called a derelict in the stream of law. Um, Even the Supreme Court has said it's inconsistent and illogic with regards to the antitrust laws. And there's been lots of written about it that there's no rationale for its justification, that it's just a purely historical evolution of an exemption. And of course, it's also been sharply criticized by legal scholars. The interesting thing to me about that exemption is, as Melissa mentioned, it's court-derived. Right. And there's been this trick about how it actually started evolving, which is the court said, we created this exemption and now only Congress can repeal it. Sure. And so as long as Congress didn't act, The exemption was going to stay well then congress acted in 1998 and enacted the curt flood act which supposedly narrowed the exemption but what ended up happening then the court said well the congress only acted on a certain area so if they didn't act on other areas that means the exemption still stands and so instead of narrowing the exemption it seemed like it broadened the exemption lots have been written about the baseball exemption and we can go on and on and on. But what's interesting is 2015, 2017, we start seeing more judicial challenges to the exemption. And we had three cases in 2017 challenging the baseball exemption. All of them upheld the exemption. And the Supreme Court decided not to hear cert on those three cases, which means, to me, the court is just not interested in challenging this. It's got to go back through Congress. Yeah. So the other exemptions for professional sports have to do with Sports Broadcasting Act. And for this one, it applies to football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. Um, It relates to telecasting of games and when games can be blacked out for home games. And then there's also the exemption for uh, labor union negotiations. One of them that I just do not want to get into because it's very complicated. But let's now go into amateur sports.
0: Thanks, Kim. That was a great synopsis of what is happening now and what has happened in the past with respect to antitrust exemptions in major league sports. So Satya, kicking it to you, what are you seeing in terms of amateur sports? What are you seeing in terms of particular areas where you might actually need an antitrust exemption in sports, but there isn't one right now? General question, but thankfully we have you because you're an expert in this stuff. What do you think?
2: So I'll start by saying I'm deeply skeptical of antitrust exemptions, particularly in the sports space. And I'll be the first to admit that that in part derives from my role principally as a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, And that's frequently how I encounter at least proposed antitrust exemptions in the sports arena. And if we can return for a moment to Kim's comments and Melissa's comments, I think what you see emerging from exemptions in sports when it comes to antitrust is a real morass there is little consistency across different sports. The emergence of some of these statutory and non-statutory exemptions are almost always located in a particular sub-industry at a particular point in time. And so much has happened in sports in the United States in the last 20 years, let alone the last 60 years. And I think the baseball exemption really typifies that problem, one that everyone, in including the Supreme Court, is willing to acknowledge.
0: What do you think about, though, people saying that the NCAA is a prime candidate for immunity?
2: Well, so this is something that we have litigated in the O'Bannon matter. And you have, from the Ninth Circuit, a ruling that the NCAA is not entitled presumptively to some sort of antitrust immunity when it comes to eligibility rules. There has been some authority from the Seventh Circuit suggesting that perhaps there might be reason to entertain that. We think that's settled law at this point, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly in the Ninth Circuit. And for good reason. The premise is that the NCAA, and this extends beyond just college athletics to other forms of amateur athletics. The premise is that this is non-commercial activity and as such should fall outside of the boundaries of the antitrust laws. But I think it's it's difficult to make those sorts of distinctions, particularly in modern American big-time college football and college basketball, which we know sends a lot of revenues in various directions. But I I wouldn't restrict my comments to the amateur sports arena alone. I think that uh, you frequently have questions from clients, questions from litigators, frankly, as to why some sports are treated differently than others when it comes to antitrust. And I struggle to come up with a good answer other than the sort of historical background that we've been talking about.
0: So why do you all think that antitrust exemptions or antitrust in sports has really gripped the country? Why do we have, you all are sports lawyers, there's not a lot of you out there. Why have we seen people so interested in the O'Bannon matter, for example, or when the NBA or NFL have these antitrust issues. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how that plays into an antitrust exemption? Are we talking popular culture and antitrust mixed here? Let's start with you, Melissa.
1: That's a great question. But again, I tend to be the 30,000 foot view here because I'm exemptions and immunities generally. And I think pop culture and exemptions and immunities are inextricably intertwined. You can't have an exemption from a broad law or an immunity from a broad law unless people sociologically decide this is important. You can question whether or not baseball is more important than football or college football is, or college basketball or ice hockey is more important than baseball, I think what you've seen is, at least in the NCAA, the rise of a sociological phenomenon that really started with border regions mm-hmm. in whatever, what was it? 1984. Yeah. When the Supreme Court said any antitrust rule of reason that we're going to apply to right. NCAA sports is not going to go so far as to allow the NCAA to limit the number of televised football games on TV. Televised football games are very popular. And I remember when you couldn't get anything but one game per Saturday, sure. all of a sudden you've got whole networks. So as that happens and college sports athletes become more and more well known, right. they wanna be able to capitalize financially to monetize right. their popularity. yeah. And unsurprisingly, it bleeds into the exemptions and immunities of antitrust because sure. truth is, any exemption and any immunity, and quite frankly, any trust laws are a lagging indicator. Right. They're gonna follow what it is that people want out of their laws.
0: That's a great point, Melissa, and Sacha. I'm interested in getting your take on that and what you see based on the cases you've worked on and some of your thoughts about you know the importance of sports in our culture and how antitrust is playing a significant role in that, or not.
2: Yeah, I think I'm gonna pick up on comments that have already been raised and try and distill some of them. First, that sports in America today is a really sacred territory, right? So many of us value this so much, and I think we can acknowledge, certainly as antitrust lawyers, that there's some modicum, as, as I think Melissa was pointing out, of agreement, of even horizontal agreement, required to make sports work, you know, whether it's, you know, how many games are going to be played on a Saturday or how many yards constitute a first down, but where do we draw that dividing line between what is absolutely critical to make the product, to make this work for us to agree on the rules of the game, if you will. And where do we start talking about industry and business and competition in the same way that we would of any industry? And I think that's the challenge, sort of figuring out where the business of sports ends and we start moving into this territory that people think of as the purity of sport or the love of sport. I tend to be of the view that these things aren't mutually exclusive. We can feel very strongly about sports and nonetheless treat it much like we would any other industry.
3: So I want to say something here. We have tons and tons and tons of sports fans in this nation. Many of them have no idea what antitrust laws are. But with the recent cases, all of a sudden antitrust is now on the lips of people that never would have known about antitrust. So God bless sports for bringing antitrust to the (laughs) common people. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. So that's a great point, Kim. And I wanted to briefly segue into a little bit breaking out of sports and antitrust exemptions into talking a bit about each of your practices. Because as someone, as a partner at a law firm who has knows each of you and knows what you do, I think it's really interested and I think that a lot of people also identify with what you do in sports and antitrust more than a lot of other areas of antitrust. So, you know, Kim, for instance, I know that your work, you work with not only just potentially college or professional levels, you might work with amateur athletes at the high school level or even at the junior high level. Could you give us a sense for that so that we can kind of, you know, we've learned about antitrust and exemptions in sports, but what is this practice of sports and antitrust law that I think folks will find really interesting?
3: So I started off as a paralegal in a law firm working on collegiate athletics, antitrust issues. And I was very interested in that and went to law school. It led me going to law school. Coming out of that it is a very privileged position to be able to practice antitrust and sports law at the same time. Um, but those issues are very broad-ranging. Sure. What I was doing in the first few years of my practice have evolved quite differently to what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And being able to counsel high schools or amateur sports leagues about potential antitrust issues. Sometimes it's not very complicated. Sometimes it's just a member of the league, a team member threatening to leave and threatening antitrust and and walking those teams, the organizations through the... Yeah, antitrust is a big, scary concept. It costs a lot of money to litigate, but sometimes those threats aren't really there. But you need to walk through the whole market definition and walk through whether or not this is a very valid concern or not to sometimes just individual athletes having issues as well and working and addressing those issues with the organizations. It has become a very popular practice area. Sure. Lots and lots of people want to get into it, but unfortunately there's not a lot of opportunity right. to practice. Sure. Um, so I, I appreciate being able to do it.
0: Yeah, Melissa, how about you?
3: It's interesting
1: because when I started being invited to participate on sports law panels, it occurred to me that sports law is really mostly contracts, whether individual contracts or stadium contracts, some public financing, some antitrust, and employment law. Now, the employment law, the antitrust, and the contracts all go together. So ironically enough, my first sports law case was I represented Stefan Marbury back in the day when he was in a big fight with And One, his shoe company, because he said those shoes hurt his feet, and he refused to wear them on the basketball court. And it was a very, very nasty litigation, and they ended up settling with sort of a, okay, we're all gonna go to our own corner. And I thought, this is really cool because I've always been a sports fan. I've got three brothers. I played college lacrosse. And so my feeling was, this is really cool. Fast forward, I'm an antitrust lawyer and my first real foray into antitrust was, I'm from Philadelphia. I'd practiced in Philadelphia a number of years. I was at Cozen O'Connor, which is a firm that has a DC office. I was the head of their antitrust practice. Mm and the then governor of pennsylvania tom corbett was irate because the ncaa had enacted these horrible sanctions against pennsylvania and penn state right. as a result of the sandusky scandal sure nobody doubts the sandusky scandal was a horrible thing mm-hmm. but whether or not the state should pay for it and whether penn state should pay for it when it happened years prior um was that an appropriate remedy was it something that the ncaa was politicizing and the governor decided on behalf of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that he wanted to file an antitrust lawsuit. It was not successful, although we got fairly far. And then the legislature in Pennsylvania passed what could only be described as an ex post facto law, rendering the sanctions illegal in only the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Naturally, the NCAA got hometowned. They lost. I did not participate in that case. But by then, I had been contacted by Sathya and his wonderful partners saying, hey, water's fine you want to jump in on O'Bannon and so I was privileged enough to participate in some of that so sure. it got me thinking about NLRB issues and antitrust issues and the NCAA in a way that I'd never really thought about them before sure and it's really not an issue of what is right and what is wrong but what is the proper remedy yeah. and who is the proper arbiter over what remedies should be exacted in any bad situation
2: right Satya how about you So I think my story illustrates Melissa's initial point that we may call ourselves sports lawyers from time to time, but in reality, we are all-purpose litigators, lawyers, transactional lawyers that are versed in things like contract law, things like substantive antitrust law, things like intellectual property law. And by doing we hope, a good job for our clients and getting repeat business and being known in various industries, some of us have been fortunate enough mm-hmm. to end up in the sports sphere, which makes us much more popular at cocktail parties than, yeah. than I was prior to doing yeah. sports sure, law work. Sure. <laughs> sure. So I started at Housefeld in 2009 and quickly thereafter joined the O'Bannon litigation mm-hmm. team. Frankly, at a time when very few people saw that case as promising a way to sort of reform college athletics. It wasn't until years later that there was really a, a lot of cultural momentum and litigation momentum behind that effort. Yep. And as a result of the work that we did in that case and a few other cases, we've been active in the concussions litigation at the college and NFL level. We have come to represent athletes, current and former, professional and amateur Uh, sports businesses, small, medium, and large, in resolving disputes and exploring, among other things, the particular contours of some of the immunities and exemptions that we've been talking about today.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, so I just want to say a couple things. We're running close to time here. First, you know, I've actually been to cocktail parties with Sacha, and he introduces himself as, hi, my name is Sacha Gooslin. I'm an all-purpose litigator. Some <laughs> find that odd. I, I find it, you know, appropriate. He is, he's very endearing, but, you know, I just wanted to let you all know that. And second is, I think that Really, the highlight of this podcast for me is that we've covered an extremely complex area of law, antitrust immunity. We've then talked about the application of sports with respect to antitrust exemption. And then we've talked about some of the different areas, Kim's practice, Melissa's practice, Sasha's practice, and how each of them got into their practices as antitrust lawyers, but antitrust and sports lawyers as well, which I think in 30 minutes is a lot to pack in. So. All of that said, I'll quickly, before I close up here, I'll ask each of you if you wouldn't mind just telling folks how you can be reached in case people have questions about any of the things that we discussed today. Kim?
3: so For me, for Kim, you can reach me at my email address is scott at millercanfield.com, Miller Canfield in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm not gonna give a phone number online though. How about that? Does that works. <laughs> st- starting Sounds a good safe.
0: plan. Let's let's Melissa, your so, email.
1: Melissa Maxman and I'm at the law firm of Cohen & Gresser in Washington DC and unsurprisingly my email address is mmaxman that's m a x m a n at coengresser.com.
2: Satya and I'm a partner in the Housefeld Washington DC office. I can be reached at s Gosselin, with two S's, S-G-O-S-S-E-L-I-N, at housefeld.com. Great, and again, my name is Creighton Macy, and I can
0: be reached at creighton, C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, dot Macy, M-A-C-Y, at bakermackenzie.com. So this concludes another podcast from the ABA section of antitrust law today. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in the Apple Podcasts. Again, I'm Creighton Macy. Until next time, and I think there will be a next time because we covered so much today, but we have a lot to cover. So we might be running it back and again and again. Thank you all for listening so much. Thank you to our panelists as well. Thank Thank you.